Chapter Two, Parts Three through Five of War in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. War in the Air by H. G. Wells, Chapter Two, Parts Three through Five. The next morning found the firm of Grubb and Smallways in a state of profound despondency. It seemed a small matter to them that the newspaper and cigarette shop opposite displayed such placards as this. Reported American Ultimatum. Britain must fight. Our infatuated war office still refuses to listen to Mr. Butteridge. Great monorail disaster at Timbuktu. Or this. War a question of ours. New York calm. Excitement in Berlin. Or again. Washington still silent. What will Paris do? The panic on the Bourse. The King's Garden Party to the Masked Tuaregs. Mr. Butteridge takes an offer. Latest betting from Tehran. Or this. Will America fight? Anti-German riot in Baghdad. The Municipal Scandals at Damascus. Mr. Butteridge's Invention for America. Bert stared at these over the card of pump clips in the pane in the door with unseeing eyes. He wore a blackened flannel shirt and the jacketless ruins of the holiday suit of yesterday. The boarded-up shop was dark and depressing beyond words. The few scandalous hiring machines had never looked so hopelessly disreputable. He thought of their fellows who were out, and of the approaching disputations of the afternoon. He thought of their new landlord, and of their old landlord, and of bills and claims. Life presented itself, for the first time, as a hopeless fight against fate. "'Grub, old man,' he said, distilling the quintessence. "'I'm fair sick of this shop.' "'So am I,' said Grub. "'I'm out of conceit with it. I don't seem to care even to speak to a customer again.' "'There's that uh, trailer,' said Grubb, after a pause. "'Blow the trailer,' said Bert. "'Anyhow, I didn't leave a deposit on it. I didn't do that. Still—' He turned round on his friend. "'Look here,' he said. "'We aren't getting on here. We, we've been losing money and over fist. We've got things tied up in fifty knots.' "'What can we do?' said Grubb. "'Clear out.' Sell what we can for what it'll fetch and quit. See? It's no good hanging on to a losing concern. No sort of good. Just foolishness. That's all right, said Grubb. That's all right, but it ain't your capital been sunk in it. No need for us to sink after our capital, said Bert, ignoring the point. Uh, I'm not going to be held responsible for that trailer, anyhow. That ain't my affair. Nobody asked you to make it your affair. If you like to stick on here, well and good. I'm quitting. I'll see Bank Holiday through, and then I'm O-R-P-H. See? Leaving me. Leaving you, if you must be left. Grubb looked around the shop. It certainly had become distasteful. Once upon a time it had been bright with hope and new beginnings and stock and the prospect of credit— now, now it was failure and dust. 
Very likely the landlord would be round presently to go on with the row about the window. Where'd yer think of going, Bert? Grubb asked. Bert turned round and regarded him. I thought it out as I was walking home and in bed. I couldn't sleep a wink. What did yer think out? Plans. Oh, what plans? Oh, you're for sticking here. Not if anything better was to offer. Well, it's only an idea, said Bert. You made the girls laugh yesterday, that song you sang. Seems a long time ago now, said Grubb. And old Edna nearly cried over that bit of mine. Ah, she got a fly in her eye, said Grubb. I saw it. But what's this got to do with your plan? No end, said Bert. How? Don't you say? Not singing in the streets. Streets, no fear. But how about the tour of the water in places of England, Scrub? Hm? Singing. Young men of family doing it for a lark. You ain't got a bad voice, you know, and mine's all right. I never seen a chap singing on the beach yet that I couldn't have sung into a cocked hat. And we both know how to put on the toff a bit, hm? Well, there, that's my idea. Me and you, Grub, with a refined song and a breakdown, like we was doing for foolery yesterday. That was what put it into me head. Easy make up a program, easy. Six choice items and one or two for encores and patter. I'm all right for the patter, anyhow. Grub remained regarding his darkened and disheartening shop. He thought of his former landlord and his present landlord, and of the general disgustingness of business in an age which re-echoes to the bitter cry of the middle class, and then it seemed to him that afar off he heard the twinkle-twinkle of a banjo, and the voice of a stranded siren singing. He had a sense of hot sunshine upon sand, of the children of at least trenchantly opulent holiday-makers in a circle round about him, of the whisper, They are really gentlemen. And then, dollop, dollop, came the coppers in the hat, sometimes even silver. It was all income, no outgoings, no bills. I'm on, Bert, he said. Right, oh, said Bert. And now we shan't be long. We needn't start without capital, neither, said Grubb. If we take the best of these machines up to the bicycle mart in Finsbury, we'd raise six or seven pounds on them. We could easy do that tomorrow before anybody much was about. Nice to think of old Suet and Bones coming round to make his usual row with us and finding a card up closed for repairs. We'll do that said Grubb, with zest. We'll do that, and we'll put up another notice and just ask all inquirers to go round to him and inquire, see? <laughs> then they'll know all about us. Before the day was out, the whole enterprise was planned. They decided at first that they would call themselves the Naval Mr. O's, a plagiarism, and not perhaps a very good one, from the title of the well-known troupe of Scarlet Mr. E's, and Bert rather clung to the idea of a uniform of bright blue serge with a lot of gold lace and cord and ornamentation, rather like a naval officer's, but more so. But that had to be abandoned as impracticable. It would have taken too much time and money to prepare. 
They perceived they must wear some cheaper and more readily prepared costume, and Grubb fell back on white dominoes. They entertained the notion for a time of selecting the two worst machines from the hiring stock, painting them over with crimson enamel paint, replacing the bells by the loudest sort of motor horn, and doing a ride about to begin and end the entertainment. They doubted the advisability of this step. "'There's people in the world,' said Bert, "'who wouldn't recognize us who'd know them bicycles again like a shot. "'And we don't want to go on with no old stories. "'We want a fresh start.' "'I do,' said Grubb, "'badly. "'We want to forget things and cut out all these rotten old worries. "'They ain't doing us good.' "'Nevertheless, they decided to take the risk of these bicycles.' and they decided their costumes should be brown stockings and sandals, and cheap unbleached sheets with a hole cut in the middle, and wigs and beards of tow. The rest, their normal selves. The desert dervishes, they would call themselves, and their chief songs would be those popular ditties, In My Trailer, and What Price Hairpins Now? They decided to begin with small seaside places, and gradually, as they gained confidence, attack larger centres. To begin with, they selected Littlestone in Kent, chiefly because of its unassuming name. So they planned, and it seemed a small and unimportant thing to them, that as they clattered, the governments of half the world and more were drifting into war. About midday they became aware of the first of the evening paper placards shouting to them across the street, The War Cloud Darkens. Nothing else but that. Always rotting about war now, said Bert. They'll get it in the neck in real earnest one of these days if they ain't precious careful. Part 4 so you will understand the sudden apparition that surprised, rather than delighted, the quiet informality of Dimchurch Sands. Dimchurch was one of the last places on the coast of England to be reached by the monorail, and so its spacious sands were still, at the time of this story, the secret and delight of quite a limited number of people. They went there to flee vulgarity and extravagance, and to bathe and sit and talk and play with their children in peace and the desert dervishes did not please them at all. The two white figures on scarlet wheels came upon them out of the infinite along the sands from Littlestone, grew nearer and larger and more audible, honk-honking and emitting weird cries, and generally threatening liveliness of the most aggressive type. "'Good heavens!' said Dimchurch. "'What's this?' Then our young men, according to a preconcerted plan, wheeled round from file to line, dismounted, and stood at attention. Ladies and gentlemen, they said, we beg to present ourselves the desert dervishes. They bowed profoundly. The few scattered groups upon the beach regarded them with horror for the most part, but some of the children and young people were interested and drew nearer. There ain't a bob on this beach said Grubb in an undertone, and the desert dervishes plied their bicycles with comic business that got a laugh from one very unsophisticated little boy. Then they took a deep breath and struck into the cheerful strain of What Price Hairpins Now? Grubb sang the song, Bert did his best to make the chorus a rousing one, 
and at the end of each verse they danced certain steps, skirts in hand, that they had carefully rehearsed. Ting-a-ling, a-ting-a-ling, a-ting-a-ling, a-tang, what price airpins now? So they chanted and danced their steps in the sunshine on Dimchurch Beach, and the children drew near these foolish young men, marvelling that they should behave in this way, and the older people looked cold and unfriendly. All round the coasts of Europe that morning banjos were ringing, voices were bawling and singing, children were playing in the sun, pleasure boats went to and fro, the common abundant life of the time, unsuspicious of all dangers that gathered darkly against it, flowed on its cheerful aimless way, in the cities men fussed about their businesses and engagements. The newspaper placards that had cried wolf so often cried wolf now in vain. Part 5 Now as Bert and Grubb bawled their chorus for the third time, they became aware of a very big golden-brown balloon, low in the sky to the northwest, and coming rapidly toward them. "'Just as we were getting hold of them, muttered Grubb. "'Up comes a counter-attraction. "'Go it, Bert. "'Tang-a-ling, a-ting-a-ling, a-ting-a-ling, a-tang. "'What price airpins now?' "'The balloon rose and fell, went out of sight. "'Landed, thank goodness,' said Grubb, reappearing with a leap. "'Ang!' said Grubb. "'Step it, Bert, or they'll see it.' They finished their dance, and then stood frankly staring. "'There's something wrong with that balloon,' said Bert. Everybody now was looking at the balloon, drawing rapidly nearer before a brisk northwesterly breeze. The song and dance were a dead frost. Nobody thought any more about it. Even Bert and Grubb forgot it, and ignored the next item on the program altogether. The balloon was bumping as though its occupants were trying to land. It would approach, sinking slowly, touch the ground, and instantly jump fifty feet or so in the air, and immediately begin to fall again. Its car touched a clump of trees, and the black figure that had been struggling in the ropes fell back, or jumped back, into the car. In another moment it was quite close. It seemed a huge affair, as big as a house, and it floated down gently toward the sands. A long rope trailed behind it, and enormous shouts came from the man in the car. He seemed to be taking off his clothes. Then his head came over the side. "'Catch hold of the rope!' they heard quite plain. "'Salvage, Bert!' cried Grubb, and they started to head off the rope. Bert followed him, and colliding without upsetting, with a fisherman bent upon a similar errand. A woman carrying a baby in her arms, two small boys with toy spades, and a stout gentleman in flannels all got to the trailing rope at about the same time, and began to dance over it in their attempts to secure it. Bert came up to this wriggling, elusive serpent and got his foot on it, went down on all fours, and achieved a grip. In half a dozen seconds the whole diffused population of the beach had, as it were, crystallized on the rope and was pulling against the balloon under the vehement and stimulating directions of the man in the car. "'Pull, I tell you!' said the man in the car. "'Pull!' For a second or two the balloon obeyed its momentum and the wind, and tugged its human anchor seaward. 
It dropped, touched the water, and made a flat, silvery splash, and recoiled as one's finger recoils when one touches anything hot. "'Pull her in,' said the man in the car. "'She's fainted!' He occupied himself with some unseen object while the people on the rope pulled him in. Bert was nearest the balloon, and, much excited and interested, he kept stumbling over the tail of the dervish costume in his zeal. He had never imagined before what a big, light, wallowing thing a balloon was. The car was of brown, coarse wickerwork and comparatively small. The rope he tugged at was fastened to a stout-looking ring four or five feet above the car. At each tug he drew in a yard or so of rope, and the waggling wickerwork was drawn so much nearer. Out of the car came wrathful bellowings. Painted she has, and then it's her heart broken with all she's had to go through the balloon ceased to struggle and sank downward bert dropped the rope and ran forward to catch it in a new place in another moment he had his hand on the car lay hold of it said the man in the car and his face appeared close to bert's a strangely familiar face fierce eyebrows a flattish nose a huge black moustache he had discarded coat and waistcoat perhaps with some idea of presently having to swim for his life, and his black hair was extraordinarily disordered. "'Will all you people get hold round the car?' he said. "'There's a lady here fainted, got failure of the heart. Heaven alone knows which. My name is Butteridge. Butteridge, my name is, in a balloon. Now, please, all to the edge.' This is the last time I trust myself to one of these paleolithic contrivances. The ripping cord failed and the valve wouldn't act. If ever I meet the scoundrel who ought to have seen... He stuck his head out between the ropes abruptly and said in a note of earnest expostulation, Get some brandy, some neat brandy. Someone went up the beach for it. In the car, sprawling upon a sort of bed bench in an attitude of elaborate self-abandonment, was a large blonde lady, wearing a fur coat and a big floriferous hat. Her head lolled back against the padded corner of the car, and her eyes were shut and her mouth open. "'My dear,' said Mr. Butteridge in a common loud voice, "'we're safe!' She gave no sign. "'My dear,' said Mr. Butteridge, in a greatly intensified loud voice, "'we are safe!' She was quite impassive. Then Mr. Butteridge showed the fiery core of his soul. "'If she is dead,' he said, slowly lifting a fist toward the balloon above him, and speaking in an immense, tremendous bellow, "'If she is dead!' I will rend the heavens like a garment. I must get her out, he cried, his nostrils dilated with emotion. I must get her out. I cannot have her die in a wicker-work basket nine feet square, she who was made for king's palaces. Keep hold of this car. Is there a strong man among you to take care if I hand her out? He swept the lady together by a powerful movement of his arms and lifted her. "'Keep the car from jumping,' he said to those who clustered about him. "'Keep your weight on it. She's no light woman, and when she's out of it, it will be relieved.' Bert leapt lightly into a sitting position on the edge of the car. The others took a firmer grip upon the ropes and ring. 
"'Are you ready?' said Mr. Butteridge. He stood upon the bed bench and lifted the lady carefully. Then he sat down on the wicker edge opposite to Bert and put one leg over to dangle outside. A rope or so seemed to incommode him. "'Will someone assist me?' he said. "'If they would take this lady.' It was just at this moment, with Mr. Butteridge and the lady balanced finely on the basket-brim, that she came to. She came to suddenly and violently, with a loud, heart-rending cry of, "'Alfred, save me!' And she waved her arms searchingly and then clasped Mr. Butteridge about. It seemed to Bert that the car swayed for a moment, and then Buck jumped and kicked him. Also, he saw the boots of the lady and the right leg of the gentleman describing arcs through the air, preparatory to vanishing over the side of the car. His impressions were complex, but they also comprehended the fact that he had lost his balance and was going to stand on his head inside this creaking basket. He spread out clutching arms. He did stand on his head, more or less. His toe-beard came off and got in his mouth, and his cheeks slid along against padding. His nose buried itself in a bag of sand. The car gave a violent lurch and became still. "'Confound it!' he said. He had an impression he must be stunned because of a surging in his ears, and because all the voices of the people about him had become small and remote. They were shouting like elves inside a hill. He found it a little difficult to get on his feet. His limbs were mixed up with the garments Mr. Butteridge had discarded when that gentleman had thought he must needs plunge into the sea. Bert bawled out half angry, half rueful. "'You might have said you were going to tip the basket!' Then he stood up and clutched the ropes of the car convulsively. Below him, far below him, shining blue were the waters of the English Channel. Far off, a little thing in the sunshine, and rushing down as if someone were bending it hollow, was the beach and the irregular cluster of houses that constitutes Dimchurch. He could see the little crowd of people he had so abruptly left. Grubb, in the white wrapper of a desert dervish, was running along the edge of the sea. Mr. Butteridge was knee-deep in the water, bawling immensely. The lady was sitting up with her floriferous hat in her lap, shockingly neglected. The beach, east and west, was dotted with little people. They seemed all heads and feet, looking up. And the balloon, released from the twenty-five stone or so of Mr. Butteridge and his lady, was rushing up into the sky at the pace of a racing motor-car. "'My crikey!' said Bert. "'Here's a gal!' He looked down with a pinched face at the receding beach, and reflected that he wasn't giddy, then he made a superficial survey of the cords and ropes about him with a vague idea of doing something. "'I'm not going to mess about with this thing,' he said at last, and sat down upon the mattress. "'I'm not going to touch it. I wonder what one ought to do.' Soon he got up again and stared for a long time at the sinking world below, at white cliffs to the east and flattening marsh to the left at a minute wide prospect of weald and downland, at dim towns and harbours and rivers and ribbon-like roads, at ships and ships, decks and foreshortened funnels upon the ever-widening sea, and at the great monorail bridge that straddled the channel from Folkestone to Boulogne, until at last, 
first little wisps and then a veil of filmy cloud hid the prospect from his eyes he wasn't at all giddy nor very much frightened only in a state of enormous consternation end of chapter two parts three through five